السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونشكره ونستعينه ونستغفره ونستهديه ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أرسله بالحق بشيرا ونذيرا بين يدي الساعة من يتع الله ورسوله فقد رشد ومن يعصهما فقد غوى حتى يفيء إلى أمر الله وإنه لا يضر إلا نفسه ولن يضر الله شيئا وقال الله عز من قائل أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respects listeners This is our first lesson of tafsir Normally every week we do commentary of Mukhtasar al-Sahih al-Bukhari the abridged version of Sahih al-Bukhari better known as At-Tajrid al-Sarih li-Ahadith al-Jami'i al-Sahih we've started a new program of Tafsir once a month and being a commentary on the holy book <coughs> Quran, the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I thought we'd begin from the end of the Quran, counterintuitively, not from the beginning, for the simple reason that most people are familiar with the final, smaller surahs of the Quran as they are often recited on a daily basis in prayer and otherwise. So today we begin with the tafsir of Surah Al-Falaq, which is actually the penultimate, second last surah of the Qur'an, number 113 rather than the final one. And there's a reason for that. Surah Al-Falaq, which we all know, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitanir Rajeem, Bismillahir Rahmanir Raheem, Qul A'udhu Barabbil Falaq, till the end. This surah can be considered the first half of a set of the final two surahs. So the surah قُلْ أَعُوذُ and the final surah قُلْ أَعُوذُ are deeply connected. Surah Al-Falaq has Five verses, Surah Al-Nas has six verses, and these are 11 verses in total. We can almost consider these 11 verses to be the verses of a single surah, which has been divided into two parts. There are other surahs of the Qur'an as well that are similar. Surah Al-Duha and Surah Al-Nashrah are also of course, they are two distinct and separate surahs. 
in terms of their content, the ulama have almost considered both of them to be two halves of one surah. Surat Al-Nashrah and Surat Al-Duha both deal with the seerah and the personal character and life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Surat Bara'ah Bara'atun min Allahi wa rasulihi ilal ladhina ahadtun min al-mushrikeen Surat Bara'ah famously doesn't have Bismillah at, at its beginning. And there are many explanations for that. But one of the preferred explanations is quite simple. Is that some of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, including Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan radiyallahu they did not consider Surat Bara'ah to be a distinct surah. Rather, it was a continuation of the previous surah, with a break in between. So these are just some other examples. So Surat Al-Falaq and Surat Al-Nas, they can be considered two halves of one actual surah, even though, to all intents and purposes, they are recorded as being two distinct surahs of the Qur'an. And this will become clearer as we actually go through the meanings of these verses. They are deeply interconnected. <clears throat> so rather than beginning with Surah Al-Nas, we have to begin with Surah Al-Falaq. So Surah Al-Falaq, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ مِنْ شَرِّ مَا خَلَقُ وَمِنْ شَرِّ غَاسِقٍ إِذَا وَقَدْ وَمِنْ شَرِّ النَّفَّاثَاتِ فِي الْعُقَدْ وَمِنْ شَرِّ حَاسِدٍ إِذَا حَسِدٍ The name of the Surah, Al-Falaq, has been taken from the very first verse. قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ And we need to remember that these names given to the surahs are simply titles and tags and labels. So a single word from the entire surah is often employed merely to tag and label the surah and to identify it. But the tag and label do not necessarily reflect the overall theme and subject matter and contents of the surah. And that's true for almost every single surah of the entire Qur'an. For example, the longest surah is Surah Al-Baqarah, which occupies three and a half parts of the 30 parts of the Qur'an. And it covers a range of topics from the history of the history of various peoples, including... It also includes laws. It in fact includes much history, beginning with the creation of Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam. It contains the contains various other stories, the history of Banu Israel, the children of Israel, meaning the Israelites, uh, three of three tribes of whom lived in Medina with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And apart from history. The Surah Al-Baqarah contains so many different topics, laws, uh, exhortations, advice. And yet, despite a range of topics, the Surah has been named Surah Al-Baqarah, meaning the cow, which is simply one word taken from one story in this very long and huge Surah. So these names and of the, of the Surahs are merely tags and labels. They don't reflect the 
overall theme or the contents and subject matter of the surah in question. They are just simply tags and labels. So the name Surah Al-Falaq, the word Falaq, has been taken from the very first verse, which I will shortly explain. Al-Falaq originally means a fissure, a split, a cleaving, a separation. And since it means these things, the word falaq can actually be used for many different things. The word falaq also means creation, just the whole of creation. But the preferred meaning in this context of the surah is the daybreak, the crack of dawn. So Surah Al-Falaq, the surah of the daybreak, but again that's just a, te- a, a tag and a label. We begin with the first verse of the surah, Qul a'udhu bi rabbil falaq. Say, I take refuge with the Lord of the daybreak. This is the first verse of the surah. And as I said, it should be considered the first half of a set of two surahs, Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas. Before commenting on the first verse and beyond, I'd just like to mention the importance of the surah and some of its virtu- some of their virtues. <laughs> Imam Tabarani has related a hadith in his Al-Awsat, Al-Mu'ajam Al-Awsat, from Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu an, who says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that Allah has revealed two surahs to me this night, the like of which have never been seen before. And in one narration, whose like Allah has never revealed to me before. And the two surahs are, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ and قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ In another hadith related by Imam Hakim, in his al-mustadrak from Sayyidina Uqbat ibn Amir, radiyallahu an, a famous companion, he says, once I was traveling with the Prophet ﷺ between Juhfa and Abwa. These are two... Abwa is closer to Medina and Juhfa is further away from Medina, closer to the Red Sea. And we actually covered the topic of Juhfa in Kitab al-Hajj. In when I commented on some of the ahadith then, I mentioned that today Jaffa is not known, it's known better as the modern town or city of Rabir town. So, Abbut ibn Amir says, I was traveling with the Prophet between Jaffa and Abwa. Abwa is famously known as the burial place of the Prophet mother. So in this hadith related by Hakim in his al-Mustadrak, Uqut ibn Amir anhu says, I was traveling with the Prophet between Juhfa and Abwa when suddenly we were beset by a very severe storm and we were enveloped by darkness. Because of the gravity of the situation and the intense storm and the sudden darkness that enveloped them, 
Uqbut ibn Amir radiyallahu anhu says, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam began reciting verses seeking refuge with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the verses he began reciting were, Qul a'udhu bi rabbil falaq and Qul a'udhu bi rabbil nas. He then turned to me, Uqbut ibn Amir says, and said, O Uqbah, seek refuge with Allah with these two verses. For there is no one who has sought better refuge with Allah than with these two verses. Then Uqbut ibn Amir anhu says that the pro- I, I even heard the Prophet wasallam thereafter leading us in prayer with these two verses, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ and قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ In fact, this was quite customary with the Prophet wasallam. Many different companions all relate that the Prophet wasallam would recite قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ and قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ as a preference in many different prayers, he's been known to have recited these two surahs when traveling, even in Fajr. Even though it was his noble habit to recite extremely long surahs in Fajr Salah, whilst traveling, even in Fajr, he would recite Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas. In Maghrib, Surah Al-Falaq, Surah Al-Nas. In Witr Salah, Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas. So these were preferred surahs of the Prophet ﷺ for reciting in prayer. And then, in another hadith related by Imam Ahmad ibn Hamd in his Musnad from Sayyid Uqbat ibn Amir he says that the Prophet ﷺ commanded me that, O Uqbah, recites the Mu'awwidat. The Mu'awwidat is a name given by the Prophet ﷺ to three surahs of the Qur'an. قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدُ سُورَةُ الْإِخْلَاسِ قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ and قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ And there's another name also quite common in Islamic literature. المعوذتان. The Mu'awwidat means the protecting one. The ones that protect, the guarding, protective ones. And al-mu'awwidatan means the two guarding and protecting ones. So when we say al-mu'awwidatan, we refer to two guarding and protective surahs, namely Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas. But on occasions, and in fact these are famously known as al-mu'awwidatan, you may have heard them, uh, as al-mu'awwidatayn whether you say al-mu'awwidatayn uh, or al-mu'awwidatan both refer to surah al-falaq and surah al-nas but as in this hadith the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam advised uqbat ibn amir radiyallahu an to recite the mu'awwidat which is a plural the protective and guarding ones so the protecting and guarding ones refers to three surahs. قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدُ قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ and قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ So, Uqbat ibn Amir radiyallahu anhu says, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said to me, O Uqbah, recite the mu'awwidat, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدُ قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ and قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ after every single salah. 
So this is why it's sunnah to include these three final surahs. And the third last one, as part of our dhikr after each salah. And then again, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in his Musnad relates a third very beautiful hadith from the same companion, Uqbat ibn Amir, who says that one day I approached the Prophet and I grabbed his hand. Well, not grabbed, but I took hold of his hand. And I said to him, O Messenger of Allah, Manajatul Mu'min, tell me, what is the salvation of a believer? So the Prophet ﷺ said, Ihris lisanak, wal yasa'ka baytuk, wabki ala khatiyatik. Guard your tongue. Let your home confine you and weep over your sins. So Uqbat ibn Amir radiallahu anhu says, I approached the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. I took hold of his hand and I said, O messenger of Allah, tell me what is the salvation of a believer? So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in reply said three things. Ihris lisanak wal yasa'ka baytuk wabki ala khatiyatik. Guard your tongue. Let your home confine you. The meaning of let your home confine you is do not venture out unnecessarily. Keep yourself to yourself. Concern yourself with yourself. And weep over your sins. Uqbat ibn Amir continues that on the next occasion, when I saw the Prophet ﷺ, he took hold of my hand and he said to me, O Uqba, should I not inform you of the three best surahs that have ever been revealed in the Torah, the Injil, the Zabur, and the glorious Quran? Should I not inform your Uqba of the three best surahs that have been revealed in the Torah? The scripture given to Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam. In the Injil, the gospel of Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam. And the Zabur, the Psalms of Dawood alayhi salam. And the glorious Quran. Should I not inform you of the three best surahs that that have ever been revealed in any divine scripture to any messenger? So Uqbat ibn Amir radiallahu anhu said, Bala fidaka abi wa ummi ya Rasulullah. Of course, may my father and mother be sacrificed for your sake, O Messenger of Allah. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Qul huwallahu ahad, Qul a'udhu bi rabbil falak, and Qul a'udhu bi rabbil nas. And then he said, O Uqbah, do not ever forget these surahs, and do not ever let any night come over you without having recited these three surahs. So Uqbat ibn Amir radiallahu anhu says Ever since the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam Told me never to forget them I have never forgotten them And ever since he told me That do not let night fall over you Without having recited these three surahs I have never ever let a night pass Without having recited these three surahs of the Quran 
And then the hadith continues. Uqba radiyallahu anhu says, On a third occasion, I saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and this time, when I approached him, I again took hold of his hand. And I said, O Messenger of Allah, inform me of the virtuous deeds. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam again said three things to him. Uqba, Sil man qata'ak, wa'a'ti man haramak, وَأَعْرِضْ عَمَّنْ ظَلَمَكَ Though Uqba, bond and join the relations of one who severs relations with you. And give to one who deprives you. And turn away and ignore, turn away from and ignore one who is unjust to you. In all three final words of advice, the Prophet ﷺ told Uqbat ibn Amir to have the upper hand, to be the better one. So, Silman Qata'ak, whoever severs relations with you, you join those relations, you bond your relationship with him, and you honor the bond between you and him. And that's why in one famous hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, لَيْسَ الْوَاسِلُ بِالْمُكَافِي وَلَكِنَّ الْوَاسِلَ الَّذِي إِذَا قُطِعَتْ رَحِمُهُ وَصَلَحَا Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says that, uh, before mentioning anything further about this hadith, just to remind ourselves that, سِلَةُ rahim means the joining and the bonding of the relations of kin, blood and family. And Silatul Rahim is a very noble, and not just a noble, but a noble concept, but it's actually an obligation in Islam. So the Prophet ﷺ says that, لَيْسَ الْوَاسِلُ بِالْمُكَافِئِ Wasil, the one joining, and the one fulfilling the obligation of Silatul Rahim in Islam, is not one who merely reciprocates. I, if the other person promotes a good relationship and they bond their relations and their link with, with me, for instance, then if I keep good relations with them, I am merely offering them the same that they have given to me. I am merely reciprocating their bonding of relations with me. I'm not doing anything further or extra. So this much is not considered a noble virtue. In fact, it's an obligation upon me. So the Prophet ﷺ says, The joiner is not the reciprocator. So one who simply reciprocates good relations, and the bonding of kin-blood family relations is not a joiner in the sight of Allah. He says in the hadith, the wasil, the joiner and the keeper of good relations is one who when others sever relations with him, he bonds them and he joins them. So, this is what the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said to Uqbat ibn Amir radiyallahu anhu, Silman qata'ak, 
Whoever severs their relations with you, you bond your relations with him. وَعَاطِ أَمْنٌ And whoever deprives you in distribution or in gifts and in grants, then you give to him. And whoever oppresses you or is unjust towards you, then rather than retaliate, you overlook and turn away. So these were the final three words of advice, and this brings to an end the hadith. But the main part of the hadith was a middle part in which the Prophet ﷺ said, when taking his hand, or Uqbah, should I not inform you of the three best surahs ever revealed in the Torah and in the Injil and in the Zabur and in the glorious Quran? Uqbah ibn Amr said, May my parents be sacrificed for your sake. Of course, O Messenger of Allah. So the Prophet said, In another hadith, again continuing with the virtues of these two surahs, Abdullah ibn Khubayb is a companion. And Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal again in his Muslim relates from Abdullah ibn Khubayb who says that one day, Again, there was a storm, it was dark, and we were missing the Messenger of Allah sallallahu waiting for him to lead us in prayer. So, since he never arrived, we actually went out looking for him. And he says, I found him. Abdullah ibn Khubayb says, I found him. So when I found him in this darkness, he said to me, read. I, I remained silent. I didn't say anything. Then he said to me, read. Again, I remained silent. I didn't say anything. Then for the third time, he said to me, read. I said, O Messenger of Allah, what should I read? The Prophet ﷺ said, read, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدُ قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ and قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ so, And then he said, the Prophet ﷺ said, O Abdullah, Recite these three surahs every morning and every evening thrice. In fact, the words are evening first. So recite these three surahs. Every evening and every morning thrice. If you do so, they will suffice you and protect you from everything. So again, this is another sunnah. To recite, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ and the addition of قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدْ after every salah. And three times in the morning and three times in the evening. Now, the reason the Prophet ﷺ encouraged the recitation of these three surahs in particular was because they are the protecting, guarding, preserving ones. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed them in such a way and they contain such qualities that along with all their other blessings and the lessons and wisdom contained in these three surahs, they also have a very, they also have a protecting, guarding quality. And in fact, such that the Prophet 
wouldn't just recite, he wouldn't just encourage others to recite these surahs for protection. He would actually recite them regularly himself to the extent that Imam Tirmidhi rahmatullahi alayhi relates a hadith from Sayyidina Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiyallahu anhu. Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiyallahu anhu says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam he would seek refuge with Allah and protection through various means from the evil eye of men and the evil eye of jinn. But when Allah revealed Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas, he left everything else and he would only recite these two surahs, Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas, for protection. And this is why Umm Al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha relates in a hadith recorded by Imam Bukhari in his Sahih as well as others. She says that each night when the Prophet ﷺ would retire to his bed, he would recite قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ and قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ And then he would blow into his noble hands and rub his hands all over his body, beginning with the front part. He would do this each night. And she also relates in another hadith, again recorded by Imam Bukhari as well as others, that when the Prophet ﷺ would fall ill, he would recite these three surahs, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ and قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ and then blowing on his noble hands, he would rub his body to relieve himself of pain. And these were his three preferred surahs of the Qur'an. Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha continues that, فَلَمَّا اشْتَدَّ وَجْعُهُ When his pain would become excessive, and he wouldn't be able to read or blow into, the, into his hands and rub himself himself, then I would do it for him. But she says so beautifully that I would recite, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقٍ قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ and then I would blow into his hands, not my hands. And then I would take his noble hand and I would pass his hands over his body. Raja'a barakatiha, saying, in the hope of seeking the blessing of his hands. So Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha would diligently ensure that she would continue with the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ and recite for him because he was unable to recite because of his excessive pain. However, she wouldn't blow into her own hands and rub her hands over his body. Rather, she would blow into his hands and then taking his noble hand, she would guide his hand over his body. Why would she do that? Raja'a barakatiha, seeking the blessing of his hand. This is this hadith shows how the wives of the Prophet ﷺ viewed him, not just as a husband, but as a messenger of Allah. Now, a very simple question here is, you may have heard that I've mentioned only three surahs so far, 
قل هو الله أحد قل أعوذ برب الفلق قل أعوذ برب الناس and yet the common practice is to recite قل يا أيها الكافرون as well so why have I excluded قل يا أيها الكافرون from the discussion so far because most people's practice is to recite the four quls as is commonly known. Well, the truth is, mu'awwidat, the protecting, guarding ones, are, have been designated as these three in the hadith. And all of the hadith I've just related to you, all of them clearly mention only these three or the final two, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ أَنْ قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ أَنْ قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ Or the final two, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ أَنْ قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ They don't mention قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ So is that practice unfounded? No. The قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ has been mentioned elsewhere. But the purpose for reciting قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ is different. And that's why in a hadith related by Nawfal, well, related by, on the authority of the companion Nawfal, recorded by various authors, including Imam ibn Hibban in his Sahih, that Nawfal approached the Prophet wasallam, and he said to him, O Messenger of Allah, give me something to read when I retire to my bed. So the Prophet said, Read, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ ثُمَّ نَمْ فَإِنَّهَا بَرَاءَةٌ مِّنَ الشِّرِكِ He said, read, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ Then go to sleep. ثُمَّ نَمْ فَإِنَّهَا بَرَاءَةٌ مِّنَ الشِّرِكِ For it, meaning the surah, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ is a renunciation of idolatry. So the practice is established and it's in the sunnah of reciting قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ before going to sleep. However, the reason for reciting قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ is actually different from the recitation of قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدْ قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ and قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ These three final surahs are recited because they are regarded as being مُعَوِّذَات the protective, guarding, preserving ones. And... The recitation of قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ if you consider the meaning is not so much because it is a guarding protective one but rather because it is a renunciation of idolatry. So that is also recited at night before retiring but for a very different reason. So there's no harm in combining all four but what the Prophet ﷺ would do himself and what he advised and encouraged most people to do in the hadith was the final three. And the recitation of قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ has also been encouraged, but for a different reason. But also, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ does have protective uh, qualities as well. In one hadith later by Imam Tabarani from Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu, uh, what had happened, Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu says that we were, once I was with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and he was praying salah, and a scorpion bit him in salah. 
So when the Prophet ﷺ concluded his salah, he said, Allahu al-Aqrab. La tad'u musalliyan wa la That Allah cursed the scorpion. It does not spare even someone praying salah or even a prophet of Allah. Then he told Sayyidina Ali radiallahu an to fetch water and salt. So when water and salt was brought, the Prophet ﷺ mixed the salt in water and then he recited, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ and قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ and قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ Three surahs. Strength. Well, uh, interestingly here, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدْ wasn't recited. وَقُلْ أَعُوذُ قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ and the final two surahs, the Prophet ﷺ recited over the water and rubbed it where the scorpion bite was and he continued to read and blow over himself as he uh, was massaging his uh, part of his body where he was bit. So he was reciting and blowing with these three surahs. قُلْ يَا أَيُّهُ الْكَافِرُونَ قُلْ قُلْ There are many other ahadith which speak of the virtues of these three surahs, but I'll suffice with this. Moving on with the actual commentary. قُلْ The first verse. Say, I take refuge with the Lord of the daybreak. Daybreak, the crack of dawn. And if I can just translate the whole surah, we can understand the rhythm and the continuity of meaning and the relationship between the different parts of the surah. Allah says, Say, I take refuge with the Lord of the daybreak. Min ma khalaq from the evil of what he has created. And from the evil of the night when it pervades, or when it gathers. And from the evil of those who blow into the knots. And from the evil of the envier, when he envies. So in the first verse, Allah says, Say, I take refuge with the Lord of the daybreak. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the Lord of everything, the whole of creation. Just as Allah mentions right at the beginning of the Qur'an. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, Maliki, Yawmiddin. Allah says in the very first verse, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, all praise be to Allah, the Lord of the worlds. There is a very unique connection between Surah Al-Fatiha and the final two surahs. The surahs of the Qur'an are not arranged haphazardly. There is a rhythm and a certain structure Although it's a very subtle one. And the connection between the beginning and the end of the Qur'an is in fact quite clear. Allah begins the Qur'an with the words, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen, all praise be to Allah, the Lord of the worlds. Allah establishes and emphasizes His Lordship, His Kingdom, His Ownership, His Authority and His Sovereignty over the whole universe. 
And then later in Surah Al-Fatiha, Allah teaches us that Maliki Yawmiddin, Allah is not just the Lord of the universe and the world and the worlds now. Allah is the Lord of the universe and Allah is the Lord of the hereafter. Speaking of the universe, I was, we were gazing at the stars the other day with some of my students. And I was pointing out the moon. Well, everyone can see the moon, but the, the planets of Jupiter and Venus close to the moon. And Mars on the other side. And we were just gazing at the stars. And I mentioned that, astronomically, we are told... That in this one galaxy, well, our solar system is a small solar system of just eight planets. We are, we on Earth are 93 million miles away from the sun. But the other planets of our solar system are hundreds of millions of miles away. Those beyond us. And our solar system is... A system of planets revolving, orbiting around one star. Just one star. The sun. And our galaxy has over a hundred billion stars. This is what we are told astronomically. And there's not just one galaxy. There are approximately 200 billion galaxies. And on average, although our galaxy has 100 billion stars, on average, there are approximately 200 billion stars in 200 billion galaxies. And the distances are unbelievable between them. Unimaginable distances, trillions and trillions and trillions of miles. And these are just between stars and galaxies let alone the whole universe. And having discussed that, I mentioned, and Allah says, about stars and planetary bodies, and we have adorned and beautified the worldly sky with the beauty and the ornament of heavenly bodies. Gawakib doesn't necessarily mean stars, it means heavenly bodies, which includes Stars, planets, and all the other collections and clusters of stars, no matter what names we may give them. So Allah says, And verily we have adorned the worldly sky with the beauty of the heavenly bodies. What that means is that the known universe, as we understand it, with its billions of stars in each galaxy and with billions of galaxies and beyond, all of this, what we know and what we yet don't know, is still confined within the lowest, lowest worldly sky above which there are six further skies and six further heavens. So, Khairan. Allah says, Rabbil Alameen, the Lord of the worlds. And when we say worlds, we shouldn't just 
think on a small scale. As I mentioned, this is just one world as we understand it. It's one universe. And then Allah says, Maliki Yawmiddin, Master of the Day of Judgment. Allah is Lord and Master of this world. Now, of worlds, of the hereafter. And then Allah says, Iyaka na'bud wa iyaka nasta'een later, teaching us that when you should pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and there should be two things. Iyaka na'bud, and this is something we affirm every day in prayer. It is only you that we worship. Wa iyaka nasta'een, and it is only you from whom we seek help. These themes of the sovereignty and authority of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over creation, one, and two, the obligation of Allah's creation and humanity to seek assistance only from Allah and to worship only Allah and to turn only to Allah, these central themes of Surah Al-Fatiha are repeated in Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas. And Allah begins that, Say, I take refuge with the Lord of Daybreak. Allah is not just the Lord of Daybreak. The verses continue, and in Surah Al-Nas we learn, Allah is a Lord of mankind. Allah is a Lord of creation. Allah is a Lord of Daybreak. And then, just as Allah teaches us in Surah Al-Fatiha that we should only turn to Allah in worship, and we should only turn to Allah to seek assistance and succor, similarly, Allah emphasizes that in the final two surahs, that we, for our protection, can only turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To seek refuge, we can only turn to Allah. To seek protection, we will only find protection with Allah and that's what's mentioned here. So, say, I take refuge with the Lord of daybreak. What's the significance of daybreak? Daybreak, simply the crack of dawn? No. There is a connection between all of the verses of Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas. And they reflect a greater theme mentioned in Surah Al-Fatiha as well. Which is... Turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah is the one who delivers. Allah is the one who saves. And Allah is the one who extracts people. As one verse of the Quran says, مِنَ الظُّلُمَاتِ إِلَى النُّورِ From not one single darkness, but from darknesses to light. And this is the, this is the imagery in daybreak, just as the darkness of the night fades and soon disappears with the crack of dawn and the appearance of the morning light, night disappears along with all of its dangers, along with its evils, along with its threats and lurking hazards. And people feel safe in the morning light. This is something mentioned later on in the verse. Similarly, Allah subhanahu the morning daybreak signifies the clarity, the light, the dawn, the daybreak, and the morning of religion. And the morning of Allah's guidance. Those who turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for guidance, for protection, 
Just as Allah delivers people to the safety of the day after daybreak from the darknesses and the dangers of the night, turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will result in the deliverance of people from misguidance, from waywardness, from deviation, and from the dangers and darknesses of other ways to the light and the safety of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's hidayah and guidance and his religion. And this is why when the I told the students that if you want to give a title to today's surah and talk, call it from darknesses to dawn. Not just simply daybreak, from darknesses to dawn. So, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ Say, I take refuge with the Lord of the daybreak. مِنْ شَرِّ مَا خَلَقْ From the evil of what he has created. Ultimately, whether it's good or bad. All creation, everything, is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So from the evil of what he has created. And from the evil of the night, when it gathers, i.e. its darkness gathers. The meaning of is when the night settles and the darkness covers and blankets everything. And it's pervasive. Today we may not be able to really tell much of a difference because of artificial lighting. But move away from the city into a rural area. Or visit most parts of the world where there isn't light pollution. And see, feel and experience the sounds and the whispers of the night. And the dangers that are intrinsic to the night, and which we instinctively as human beings feel. We fear creepy crawlies, insects, predators, both human and animals. We fear all manner of dangers, especially at night. This is instinctive in human beings. And we naturally feel safer during the day than we do at night. Again, uh, removing the factor of artificial lighting. And this is why, if you recall the hadith that I mentioned at the beginning, whenever there was darkness, Imam Hakim, when he relates a hadith in his mustadrak from Uqbat ibn Amir radiallahu who says that I was traveling between Juhfa and Abwa, and we were beset by darkness and a storm, what did the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa begin reciting? قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٍ قُلْ when the other Sahabi Abdullah ibn Khubaybi went out looking for Rasulullah there was darkness. The Prophet told him to read. Read what? These three surahs. And he said, read them thrice every morning and evening. They will protect you. When the Prophet was asked what people should recite at night and without even being questioned, when he encouraged people to recite at night, which surahs did he prefer at night? Again, In fact, in other ahadith, Prophet ﷺ has given us various words of advice of how to settle at night. There are etiquettes of sleeping, of retiring, of resting. Prophet ﷺ disapproved of people gathering at night, of whiling away the hours of the night in idle talk, in summer, 
as its name uh, mentioned in the hadith. In fact, his noble habit was to immediately retire after Isha Salah to the extent that he wouldn't even converse with his wives. Uh, on some occasions he would, but on many occasions he would just simply retire. If he needed to speak to his wives, the hadith says, he would speak, otherwise he would retire. Immediately after Isha Salah. And the reason for this noble habit was that he would retire and then he would rise in the middle of the night for Tahajjud Salah. So, and this was his noble habit throughout. This was the norm, not the exception. So the night is a time to retire, to rest, to sleep. And when doing so, there are etiquettes to be observed. There are prayers to be recited for one's protection. Because, undoubtedly, there are inherent dangers and lurking hazards and perils in the night. This is why Allah says, I say I seek, the re- I seek refuge with the Lord of the daybreak from the evil of what he has created and from the evil of the night when it pervades, i.e. in its darkness. And then the fourth thing, in the fourth verse Allah mentions, وَمِن شَرِّ النَّفَّاثَاتِ فِي الْعُقَدِ and, I see, uh, and from the meaning I seek refuge with the Lord of the daybreak. From what? The fourth verse says, And from the evil of the ones who blow into knots. Now, undoubtedly, this is a clear reference to witchcraft. And nafathat, the blowers, it's a feminine word, meaning uh, the gender is feminine here. And literally it would mean the, those women who blow into the knots. Now, this is the meaning taken by most commentators, that women, simply because it refers to witches, so, and from the evil of witches who blow into the knots. However, it can also mean simply souls, because nafs, the word soul, nafs in Arabic, is actually feminine. And the plural of nafs, nufus, or anfus, uh, is also feminine. So it could mean witches, and it could mean souls, from the evil of those souls, be they men or women, it doesn't make a difference, from the evil of the souls that blow into knots. Now, as I said, this is a clear reference to witchcraft, magic, and sorcery. Now, the important question here is, what does the Qur'an have to say about magic and sorcery, witchcraft? What, does, what do the ahadith have to say? And Allah is actually telling us to seek refuge with him, the Lord of the daybreak, from the evil of those who blow into knots. And in fact, the imagery is quite graphic. Allah just doesn't say from witches and warlocks or people who practice from sorcerers, but rather those who specifically blow incantations and imprecations into knots in a string. Here is the famous question. Is magic true? Does magic occur? Does magic have any effect? Is there any concept of sorcery, witchcraft and magic in Islam? Well... The Qur'an speaks of magic in more than one place. And the hadith speak of magic. 
In fact, the Qur'an and the Hadith have a lot more to say about magic than most people imagine. The view of... Well, let, let's just hear what the Qur'an has to say. Here Allah says, وَمِن شَرِّ النَّفَاثَاتِ فِي الْعُقَدِ And from the evil of those souls who blow into knots. In other verses of the Qur'an, Allah speaks about magic. For instance, in Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaking about uh, the people in Babylon. وَمَا أُنزِلَ عَلَى الْمَلَكَيْنِ بِبَابِلَ هَارُوتَ وَمَارُوتَ وَمَا يُعَلِّمَانِ مِنْ أَحَدٍ حَتَّى يَقُولَا إِنَّمَا نَحْلُ فِتْنَةٌ فَلَا تَكْفُرُ The verse begins with وَاتَّبَعُوا مَا تَتْلُوا الشَّيَاطِينُ عَلَى مُلْكِ سُلَيْمَانِ وَمَا كَفَرَ سُلَيْمَانُ وَلَكِنَّ الشَّيَاطِينَ كَفَرُوا يُعَلِّمُونَ النَّاسِ السِّحْرُ وَمَا أُنزِلَ عَلَى الْمَلَكَيْنِ بِبَابِلَ هَارُوتَ وَمَارُوتَ Very long verse, we don't have time to go into uh, complete detail. But in this verse, Allah refers to a period during which people were tested and subjected to trial by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And... The reference to Sulaiman is that certain people accused Sulaiman of being a magician. So Allah says, وَمَا كَفَرَ سُلَيْمَانُ وَلَكِنَّ الشَّيَاطِينَ كَفَرُوا And Sulaiman did not disbelieve. Rather, it was the devils who disbelieved. So the context is about magic, but Allah, say, Allah doesn't say Sulaiman did not commit or did not indulge and dabble in sorcery, Allah simply says, Sulaiman did not commit disbelief. Because sorcery can lead to disbelief. And I don't say, well, magic can lead to disbelief. And I don't say all magic is disbelief for the simple reason that uh, we call many different things magic, for instance, uh, illusions, or doing things simply as a jest or a joke, or as many magicians practice with the slights of the hand and dexterity of the hand. Uh, that in itself may not necessarily constitute disbelief. But in any case, the, the, the sorcery referred to in these verses was clearly was clear disbelief. So, وَمَا كَفَرَ سُلَيْمَانَ Allah says, Sulaiman did not commit disbelief. Rather, it was the devils that committed disbelief. And then Allah mentions that, uh, Allah mentions the reality of what happened. And that it had nothing to do with Sulaiman Rather, it was to do with the people at a certain time, بِبَابِلْ in ancient Babylon. At that time, Allah then says, They would learn from these two angels such magic and sorcery with which they would actually drive a wedge and create a divide between husband and wife. So remember that verse. Allah mentions sorcery in that verse. And then famously, Allah mentions sorcery in the story of Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam. Now, before I continue with these verses, what is the nature of magic? Sometimes we just use the word magic uh, very loosely in a metaphorical sense, that it's not actually magic, but it's wonderful. 
and therefore it's amazing, it's wonderful, and we refer to it as magic. That's beyond our discussion. By speaking about magic, we need to concentrate on witchcraft, sorcery, and magic in the more serious sense. Does it happen? Does it exist? Is it real? Apart from all of these other cases of magic, wonderful uh, displays, or doing things with the sleight of hand, covering things, concealing things, or doing something in a very dexterous manner, uh, that's beyond our discussion. We will concentrate on just two types of magic. One, magic which creates an illusion, but very serious illusion, such as when people make things disappear. I mean, huge things. Or people make things appear unto others that are very serious. We're not just talking about simple card tricks, but the disappearance of huge objects, items, and even people, and people transporting themselves from one place to another, or appearing to transform, uh, transport themselves. Do these things happen? Some people, Muslims, deny this outright, that there is no reality to magic. But the Qur'an speaks of magic. And it speaks, as I said, there are two categories I will concentrate on. The first category is where a spell is cast on a person's... An illusion is created. And in that illusion, people actually believe and see things that aren't there. That happens. And it's mentioned in the Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, in the story of Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam, in Surah Al-A'raf, قَالَ أَلْقُوا فَلَمَّا أَلْقَوْا سَحَرُوا أَعْيُنَ النَّاسِ وَاسْتَرْهَبُوهُمْ وَجَاءُوا بِسِحْرٍ عَظِيمٍ Allah says that Musa alayhi salam said to his opponents, the other sorcerers of Pharaoh, أَلْقُوا, you cast... So when they did cast, they bewitched the eyes of the people. So they cast fear into them, they frightened them. And they produced or they brought forth an immense sorcery. What that verse shows is that this wasn't a simple, innocent, humorous illusion. Rather, Allah says, what do they do? They bewitched the eyes of the people. So the people began seeing things of such an immense nature that they were frightened, genuinely frightened. So Allah says, they bewitched the eyes of the people, and they frightened them. They caused great fright. And they produced or they brought forth a great sorcery. It wasn't minor. Allah Himself refers to it as, at, refers to it as بِسِحْرٍ عَظِيمٍ A great sorcery, even though it was still an illusion. Then, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala... So that, that's when we talk about illusions. The other... The second category of magic, which is more difficult for some people to accept is not simply an illusion, but sorcery, witchcraft, and magic. 
or spells and incantations and imprecations which lead to a genuine change and not simply an illusion. Even that is true. Does not Allah say, فَيَتَعَلَّمُونَ مِنْهُمَ مَا يُفَرِّقُونَ بِهِ بَيْنَ الْمَرْءِ وَزَوْجِهِ So they, learn, they would learn from those two such sorcery with which they would create a divide between a man and his wife. There's no illusion in that. Destroying the love between two individuals, breaking a marriage, and driving two people apart who have been brought together by love, family, marriage, and a holy bond. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, the sorcerers in ancient Babylon were able to do that. So that's not an illusion. And these are verses of the Qur'an. Now, moving on from that, I'd like to say, uh, speak about مفاثات في العقد, something which I haven't mentioned yet, uh, in all of these verses and ahadith related to Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas, there are very clear, categorical, indisputable, authentic and reliable hadith recorded by many authors, including Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim, more than once in their collections, referring to the Prophet ﷺ as being a victim of sorcery and magic. Like I said, Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim and many other authors of hadith all relate that the Prophet that Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha says, as well as, it's not just Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, other companions, including Zayd ibn al-Arqam radiyallahu anha, also relate this, uh, these hadith. They say that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and I'll just give you a summary of the authentic hadith at least on the topic, in the seventh year of Hijrah, after the Prophet ﷺ came back from Hudaybiyah, and after the Battle of Khaybar, it may have been immediately before the Battle of Khaybar, but it, uh, or immediately thereafter, but at least it was in the beginning of, uh, it was in the seventh year of Hijrah. The Prophet ﷺ, there was a young man who a young lad from one of the Jewish tribes of Medina, who would visit the Prophet ﷺ and help him in certain things. The Prophet ﷺ trusted him. <clears throat> this young lad was approached by the enemies of the Prophet ﷺ, who wished to cast a spell on him. And they convinced this young lad to collect some of the some items associated with the messenger. He was convinced, and since he visited the home of Rasulullah alayhi salatu wasalam, like I said, he was a man, he was a young lad, he picked up the comb of the Prophet and some of the strands of hair that had come away from his noble head and beard when combing. And he took these away. So there was a comb of Rasulullah 
as well as some of the hairs from his noble beard and head, which came away when combing. And he took these, and as per instruction, he delivered them to Labid ibn al-A'asim, who was a hypocrite. He was of Jewish origin, but he had embraced Islam ostensibly, hypocritically. But he remained a hypocrite. And he was actually from the Ansar, uh, he, he was from Banu Zuraiq. Labid ibn al-A'asim took these strands of hair and this comb, and he cast a spell on Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And having done so, he buried the teeth of this comb and the strands of hair. And he must have tied knots either in a string or on the hairs themselves. And he wrapped this whole collection in a sheath of date palm fiber. And he placed this, fiber meaning it was the enclosure of the bud of a date palm tree. But it was, a, it was a kind of envelope, an enclosure. He wrapped all of this in that envelope and of date palm fiber. And he placed this beneath a rock, a heavy rock, uh, in a well. Having done this, the Prophet ﷺ was completely unaware. Rasulullah began experiencing physical pains in the body. And it became more and more intense as time went on. We also learn that apart from the physical pain, Rasulullah also experienced fleeting thoughts, I do stress fleeting thoughts, that he had approached his wives when in fact he hadn't. But these weren't lasting, lingering thoughts. These were fleeting thoughts. So they would come and go immediately. But the physical pain would last. And it became very severe. And he he would also become ill over that period. This whole period lasted six months under which he remained under the, the spell, during which he remained under the spell. Then Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha relates that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to me, O Aisha, do you know? Allah has replied to me about what I inquired of him. In the words of the hadith are, Aftani fi mastaftaytu. Aftani fi mastaftaytu. He has answered me about what I inquired of him. So, and it is that the Prophet ﷺ was asleep and in a dream. And the dream of the Prophet ﷺ is wahi and revelation. He says, two angels, two men, meaning two angels came to me whilst I was lying down. One sat by my feet and one sat by my head. And the one who sat by his head was Jibreel alayhi salam, and the other who sat by his feet was Mikail alayhi salam. And one asked the other that what is wrong with him? So the other replied, Matbub, meaning he is he is under a spell. He is suffering from the effects of magic. 
So the questioner again asked, and who has cast a spell on him? And it was said, Labid ibn al-A'asam, the name and identity were given. How? So it was a whole conversation that took place between these angels over the body of the Prophet sallallahu whilst he was lying there. This was a dream that he saw. So one angel said to the other, who has cast this spell? Labid ibn al-A'asam. How did he do it? And it was explained. Where has he placed these uh, effects of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the place and location were given. So when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam woke up, he told Aisha radiallahu anha, Allah has given me an answer about what I inquired of him and he related the whole dream. Then he summoned some of the companions radiallahu anhum, including Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu, and he sent them. They went and then the Prophet ﷺ followed them himself. And the effects were extracted from beneath the rock. And indeed, they found uh, strands of his hair and a comb, and his noble comb, uh, all wrapped up, uh, along with knots. Now, what happened is that the Prophet ﷺ sent Ali and he gave him instructions. And then he followed him. And then the Prophet ﷺ went... And as was mentioned in the dream, one angel said to the other, what is a cure? And they said, قُلْ بِالنَّاسِ So there were 11 knots, and the Prophet ﷺ began reciting. Once the uh, effects had been extracted from the well, there were 11 knots. So the Prophet ﷺ began reciting, قُلْ بِالفلق. Uh, As I said earlier, there are five verses in Surah Al-Falaq, six verses in Surah Al-Nas, a total of 11. Upon the completion of each verse, each knot became unraveled. Second verse, second knot, third knot, third uh, third verse, third knot, all the way till the 11th. uh, With that, the final knot uh, came loose and it was unraveled. Then the Prophet, the words of the Hadith are, it was as though he had been suddenly released from a cord that had bound him. And he was completely relieved. Now that's the, interestingly, the Prophet ﷺ, despite having suffered the effects of magic for a period of six months, knowing the identity of the individual, Rasulullah ﷺ took no action, either against the young lad or even Labid ibn al-Asr. No action whatsoever. Now, here, many people do experience a stumbling block because they, and many people genuinely ask a very valid question. How is it possible for a messenger of Allah, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, to suffer the ill effects of magic? As a result of this conundrum, a number of people, including translators and Recent commentators, as well as one or two of the earlier commentators of the Qur'an, have completely dismissed these, this whole report. And they invalidate it, and their argument is that Allah says in the Qur'an, Allah will protect you from the people. And because of various other things, i.e. they say, how can we continue to believe in the infallibility and the protection of Rasulullah if we accept that he suffered the ill effects of magic. So, and because of this, 
the whole report, all these reports and the whole concepts and the whole incident have been completely dismissed. Now, there are some questions about that. If we dismiss this whole incident, then we are in effect... In fact, some of the commentators, recent modern-day commentators and translators, have gone to the extent of saying that although these reports have been related by authentic and reliable narrators and recorded in authentic books, we still cannot accept them. So... The question here is, do we accept the authority of the hadith or not? Especially the authentic and reliable sources such as Bukhari, Muslim and others. These aren't the only two authentic. Because these are hadith, have been re- these hadith about this particular incident have been widely reported. If we dismiss them, then on what basis... By which criteria? We will then have to consistently apply the same criteria to the rest of the hadith also. And in reality, the argument that Allah will protect you from the, from the people, that this verse negates the possibility of Rasulullah suffering the ill effects of magic. This, uh, this argument doesn't actually hold or stand if you subject to scrutiny for the following reasons. One, Rasulullah like all the other messengers of Allah, were human beings. As a result of which, their bodies and even their minds and their hearts were all, and their very person, were all subjected to the normal occurrences, and forces of human nature. The prophets of Allah fell ill. And we don't even need to look at the other messengers of the time being. Let's look at Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam himself. We all accept, Muslims all accept, that the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam went hungry. He fell ill. He, he felt thirsty. The prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam bled in battle. He was injured. He was wounded. He... He lost his noble teeth. The Prophet ﷺ was cut. He bled. In fact, uh, although not many people know this, uh, I explained it in uh, the commentary of Sahih al-Bukhari many years ago, that there were two occasions when the Prophet ﷺ led salah while sitting. One was in the early or the middle years in, of Madani life. That was the first instance, and the second instance was in his final illness before he passed away. He would sit down and lead the people in prayer. And the first time he led people in prayer while seated, uh, as the hadith of Bukhari and others state, the Prophet ﷺ said to them that when I lead sitting, you also pray behind me sitting. So the Prophet ﷺ led salah while sitting, and all of the companions behind him also performed salah while seated. And that's clearly mentioned in the hadith. Some people, unfortunately, have taken those hadith and said, right, if the imam sits down, we all have to sit down, because the hadith clearly says so. This is, again, a failure to uh, understand the chronology of the hadith. This was in the middle years of hijrah. But in the final years, in fact, in the final few days when he led salah while seated, he and the Sahaba sat down behind him in 
recognition and in honor of his earlier instruction that you should all sit behind me. He said, no, before I told you to sit if the imam sits, but now even if the imam sits, you stand. And that is the final verdict. So even now, if the imam for any reason leads prayer while seated, those behind him will continue normally uh, standing. Now, he was ill in the final days, and he had to sit and lead because of his final illness. But what was the reason for him leading prayers while seated in those middle years? And in fact, this lasted for a whole period of one month. And the reason was, he had actually fallen off his horse and broken his leg. So the Prophet ﷺ was recuperating and recovering from a broken leg. So there we are, Rasulullah was wounded in battle, he bled, he was injured, he even broke his leg while simply falling off a horse. These were, this was his human nature, and as a human being, Allah allowed his body and his mind and his human person to be subjected to all the uh, normal human forces and exposures, and that was the case which included illness. Wasn't the Prophet ﷺ poisoned? Didn't he suffer the effects of poison? In fact, in the final days, he said, he, he believed that the, well, it was the ill effects of the poison of three years earlier in the Battle of Khaybar that resurfaced. So, the Prophet ﷺ, as a human being, was subjected to all of these things. Now, this is why when he was under the spell of magic, what did he suffer? He suffered physical pain and illness, which intensified towards the end of that six-month period. If he could fall hungry, thirsty, be wounded, injured, if he could bleed, and suffer all of these normal human trials, then suffering pain and illness because of the ill effects of magic rather than a fall or an injury or battle, is in the same category. One. Two, I mentioned earlier that he had fleeting thoughts. Now, I did say he had fleeting thoughts, because it didn't mean that certain thoughts occurred to him and they lingered and lasted far from it. The Prophet ﷺ momentarily had fleeting thoughts because of the ill effects of the magic that he had actually approached his wives, but immediately these thoughts were dispelled. So it was a momentary fleeting attack, and that was part of the effects of magic. Was that possible? Yes, it is. We can't deny it simply because it's in the hadith, and I'll mention why in a moment. Apart from this physical pain and illness and these fleeting thoughts, remember, what were the thoughts that were only related to one category? Only about approaching his wives. They weren't related to anything else, and that's categorically mentioned in the hadith. In one hadith, it says he would think that he had done something when he hadn't. This, this is not a wide scope. This doesn't include everything. This is simply a euphemistic and an honorable and noble way of saying, which is explained more clearly in another hadith. Did he think about many things that he had done them when he hadn't? No. There was only one thing, which was it would, he would be made to think that he had approached his wives when in reality he hadn't. And this would be a fleeting, momentary thought which would immediately dissipate. So, in the hadith where it says that 
He would think that he had done something when he hadn't. This is simply a euphemistic way of saying only oh, one thing. He would think he had approached his wives when he hadn't. This was the only thought he had. Apart from this thought, there were no other ill thoughts, no other effects of magic, <coughs> apart from the physical pain and illness. Now, again, some people say, well, how can you accept that? Muslims would say, how can you accept that just on the basis of the hadith? Well, in Surah Taha, Going back to the story of Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam, Allah Azza wa Jal says in Surah Taha, قَالَ بَالْأَلْقُ فَإِذَا حِبَالُهُمْ وَعِسِيُّهُمْ يُخَيَّلُ إِلَيْهِ مِنْ سِحْرِهِمْ أَنَّهَا تَسْعَى فَأَوْجَسَ فِي نَفْسِهِ خِيفَةً مُوسَى قُلْنَا لَا تَخَفْ إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ الْأَعْلَى Allah says, Musa alayhi salam was asked by the sorcerers, Will you be the first to cast or shall we cast? So Musa alayhi salam said, قَالَ بَالْأَلْقُ Nay, you cast first. فَلَمَّا أَلْقَوْ Then when the sorcerers cast, فَإِذَا حِبَالُهُمْ وَعِسِيُّهُمْ Lo and behold, their ropes and their staffs, يُخَيَّلُ إِلَيْهِ مِنْ سِحْرِهِمْ أَنَّهَا تَسْعَى It was made to appear unto him in thought that these ropes and these staffs were running. فَأَوْجَسَ فِي نَفْسِهِ خِيفَةً مُوسَى So he, Musa alayhi salam, felt fear in his heart. قُلْنَا We said, Allah referring to himself in the regal pronoun, قُلْنَا We said, لَا تَخَفْ أَوْ مُوسَى Do not fear, إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ الْأَعْلَى You shall reign supreme over them. You shall prevail. Now, wasn't Musa alayhi salam one of the messengers of Allah? Wasn't Musa alayhi salam one of the ulul azmi min al-rusul, the five mighty messengers? Yes, he was. And does not Allah say of him, Musa alayhi salam, not in any hadith but in the holy Quran, that when the magicians cast their ropes and their staffs, what happened? Allah doesn't speak about anyone else. Allah speaks here in this verse, only about Musa alayhi salam. Yukhayyalu ilayhi. It was made to appear unto him. And not just simply appear. Yukhayyal is related to khayal. And khayal, as you know, is related to thought. So he was made to imagine. Musa alayhi salam was made to imagine that these ropes and these staffs were actually snakes and serpents slithering and running around all before him. And as a result of what he saw, it wasn't minor. He actually felt fear. He felt fear. Allah Azza wa Jal immediately reassured him and said, Qulna, we said, La takhaf, do not fear, innaka anta al-a'la. Indeed, you will prevail over them. If Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam could momentarily think that ropes and staffs were actually snakes and serpents slithering and running and uh, darting about him, and not just simply see these as an illusion, but experience fear as a result of them. Allah says quite clearly, and he was a messenger of Allah, and what messenger? The might, one of the mighty messengers, and he actually felt fear. Allah Hazzawajal intervened and said to him, "La takhaf, do not fear. Innaka anta al-a'la. Indeed, you shall prevail." And he was a messenger of Allah. Similarly, the Prophet ﷺ would momentarily experience certain thoughts. 
But they would be fleeting thoughts, just as Allah intervened with Musa alayhi salam, Allah would intervene and reassure the Prophet That was the only thought that's actually mentioned in the hadith. Apart from that, it was physical pain and illness, etc. These are the verses of the Qur'an. And if that could happen, Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam, the Prophet was also a messenger of Allah, it was no different. Finally, as I said, it was just one thought. Despite all of these human exposures of pain, of illness, of injury, of wounding, of bleeding, despite all the, uh, of being vulnerable to poison, and eventually death, despite all of these human exposures, and these human sufferings, Allah protected all of his messengers from Sayyidina Adam to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam with his divine protection when it came to issues of prophethood and the revelation of the Qur'an. Does not Allah say, وَمَا يَنْتِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَىٰ إِنْ هُوَ إِلَّا وَحْنِ يُوحَىٰ And he does not speak of desire. It is but a revelation that is revealed unto him. So hopefully this should reconcile, uh, well, this should address some of the concerns about these reports in the hadith. And it's not correct to dismiss them simply on the basis of these reports being in uh, the hadith and not the Holy Qur'an. Because the same argument would then apply to Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam. And that's actually in the Qur'an. Finally, um, what about sorcery and magic and witchcraft today? Look, despite what I've said here, another question is why did Allah allow the Prophet وسلم, to suffer the ill effects of magic? There's one reason for this. It's the it's a pattern. It's a pattern that we see in the Quran and in the Hadith that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala sent the Prophet وسلم, and all of the prophets and their chosen disciples and companions as beacons of light and guidance and as examples of conduct and character for their communities and their nations. This means that Allah did not send down any of his messengers as angels or their disciples and companions. Otherwise, it would have, the objective would have been defeated, just as the Quraysh argued that why doesn't Allah send down an angel? Why send him? And that's why they used to say, What's, What kind of messenger is this? What, what's wrong with this messenger? He eats food and he goes shopping in the markets. What kind of messenger is that? We would expect an angel to come down from the heavens for our guidance as a messenger and prophet. So Allah says in another verse that, uh, even if we had sent down an angel, the same confusion that they are experiencing now, and the same doubts uh, that they are that surface in their minds and hearts, and the same objections that they raise for not believing in the Messenger of Allah, they would suffer the same confusion and raise the same objections about an angel of Allah. So Allah sent down the messengers as human beings, not angels, and same with the companions and disciples who were with them. So that they could serve as examples. Anything which is befitting, anything which does not detract from the position of a messenger, Allah allowed the messengers of Allah to experience those things as an example for his nation. Anything which does, which does detract 
from their status as messengers of Allah, Allah did not allow them to undergo those experiences. Even as an example. Rather, those experiences were transferred to the companions and disciples. For instance, adultery is something totally unbecoming and unbefitting the rank of a messenger. Or even, or even, the family of a messenger. That's why we believe that no messenger of Allah, or even a member of the family of the messenger of Allah, ever was unchaste. Even the wives of Lut and Nuh alayhim salam The wives of Lut and Nuh alayhim salam uh, as mentioned in Surah Al-Tahreem, they both disbelieved. But the ulama categorically state that their sin was disbelief and rebellion against their husbands as far as the matters of belief were concerned. But personally, they were chaste. Despite their disbelief, they were chaste. However, when we look at the companions of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, a very small number, a very small number, in fact, two, two or three mentioned in the hadith, they did suffer episodes of inchastity, not repeated, a single episode of inchastity. So they were unchaste on to a number a number of companions, men and women, were unchaste. What happened? Why were some of the companions unchaste? Uh, don't misunderstand me. Why were there episodes of inchastity with a select small number of companions, men and women? Again, so that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could use them as an example. One sahabi who committed adultery but then repented when he died. And companions spoke ill of him. Two people spoke ill of him. The Prophet summoned them and said to both of them that those two come forward who were speaking of the deceased earlier. They both came forward. They were traveling. There was a carcass of a dead donkey on the road with its legs pointed up towards the sky. The Prophet said to both of them, dismount and devour and eat from this carcass. They said, Subhanallah, Ya Rasulullah, how can we eat the carcass? Prophet said, What you devoured of your brother a few moments ago was a worse devouring than this. You backbited and you consumed the flesh of your dead brother. And then the Prophet said, and this hadith has been related by many, including Imam Abu Dawood in his Sunnah and others, Imam Abu Dawood Tayalisi and many others. Prophet ﷺ said, By Allah, even now I can see him diving into the streams of Jannah. There was another woman who committed adultery. And when she died, others uttered something in contempt. Rasulullah ﷺ said, Indeed, she has repented such a repentance that if her individual repentance was to be distributed equally across all the people of Medina, it would suffice all of them. So, yes, they were believers, but they suffered an episode of inchastity. Allah allowed that to happen so that they could serve as examples. 
But the wives of the messengers of Allah to Nuh and Lut السلام, despite being disbelievers, they were chaste. What is the secret? This is a reason. What's that which wasn't befitting and becoming of the messengers, of the position of the messengers of Allah, that which detracted from their status, Allah did not allow that to happen. That which didn't detract from their status, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed it to happen to them. Otherwise, to the companions. And then there were many things which weren't even befitting the position of the companions. So Allah never allowed that to happen to the companions. Illness, exposure to human suffering, weakness, physical ailments, the effects of poison, and the effects of magic and sorcery, none of these things detract from the position of the Messenger of Allah. And so Allah Azza wa Jal allowed that to happen. Finally, Allah Azza wa Jal says in the final verse, وَمِن شَرِّ حَاسِدٍ إِذَا حَسَدٍ And from the evil of the envier when he envies. There's a connection. Allah begins a surah with the daybreak. Allah mentions the evils of the night. Allah mentions the evils of witchcraft and sorcery. And then finally, of the envier when he envies. Because envy can lead to sorcery and magic. And envy is evil. And one of the connections is, Allah says, From the evil of the dark night, when it pervades, i.e. in its darkness. In one hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, The disease of the people of the past has crept into you. Secretly. Dabba means crawled and crept into you. And what are those two diseases? Well, why does he mention... Well, this is the connection. Just as there are creepy crawlies at night and there are dangers, and the dangers and perils of the night uh, that lurk stealthily, there is a stealthy disease also that has crept into us, in the words of the Rasulullah And that stealthily, that disease, that surreptitious disease that has crept into us stealthily, like the dangers of the night, is the disease, two diseases. The disease of envy and the disease of hatred. And then the Prophet ﷺ continues in that hadith that he al-haliqa, it, this could refer to the second disease, i.e. hatred, and you can even refer to the first one, envy. It is the shaver. لا أقول تحلق الشعر ولكن تحلق الدين. I don't say that it shaves hair, it shaves religion. Because envy destroys. In fact, in one hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, إِيَّاكُمْ وَالْحَسَدْ فَإِنَّ الْحَسَدَ يَأْكُلُ الْحَسَنَاتِ كَمَا تَأْكُلُ النَّارُ الْحَطَبْ أَوْ قَالَ الْعُشْبِ He says, beware of envy, for envy consumes good deeds, just as fire consumes dry wood or grass. Imagine dry grass and dry wood. We may not fully understand it in this climate, but in uh, hot tropical climates, especially in places like Australia and Africa, uh, in those continents where there is bush. If there is a bushfire, it burns and it rages ferociously, uncontrollably. In fact, consuming not just a few uh, square meters, but we're actually talking about hundreds and even thousands of square miles. And that's a fact. So the Prophet says, Beware of envy, hasad, for envy consumes good deeds just as fire consumes wood 
or dry wood or dry grass. What's envy? Envy is where someone is passionate about something someone else has. People often uh, interchangeably use the words envy and jealousy. But in, in essence, even in the English language, envy and jealousy aren't synonymous. Jealousy is when you are passionate about something you have. A wife or a husband, a partner, a spouse. When they are jealous, they are passionate about something that they have and they want to keep and they don't want to lose. But envy is when you are passionate about what someone else has. You want them to lose it. That's the difference between envy and jealousy in English. And in Arabic, there's a further distinction, although we don't see this distinction in the English language. We use the word envy for both good and bad. So uh, someone is envious, i.e. they are envious in a malicious manner, seething with anger, green with envy, burning with envy within, because someone else has something that they don't have. But we also use the word envy in a very innocent, uh, benign manner in English, such as, I envy you your success, or I envy you your position, where we don't mean anything, uh, we don't mean ill, but we envy them. We would like to aspire to the same, we would want the same for ourselves, without any ill feeling, or without uh, harboring any desire for them to suffer any loss in their blessing. So, in English, we use the word envy for both good and bad, for, uh, whether it's malicious or benign. But in Arabic, there's a difference between uh, malignant envy and benign envy. So, in Arabic, if you are passionate about what someone else has, and you want them to be deprived of it, and you are envious in a malicious manner, that's known as hasad. But if you... Envy someone something that they have in a very benign manner, and you wish the well, you wish the best for them, but you only hope that you could have the same, and uh, it's, it's benign. Then that is known as ghibta in Arabic, ghibta. So, hasad, and we are talking about the of the evil kind. We don't have time; it's a complete topic in itself. I'll just uh, leave you with just one or two final thoughts about envy. Allah Azza wa Jal says in the Quran, "Am yahsudun al-nas ala ma atahum Allah min fadlih." That what do they envy people? What Allah has bestowed upon them of His bounty, and that's why Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu would say, "La tu'adu ni'am Allah." Do not. Do not become an enemy of the blessings of Allah. Do not oppose the blessings of Allah. So a student said to him, or Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, how is it possible for anyone to become an enemy of the blessings of Allah? So Abdullah ibn Mas'ud says, when Allah bestows his blessing upon someone, and you are envious of that blessing, then you are opposing and becoming an enemy of the blessings of Allah. In fact, you're, you're almost objecting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what this verse says, that... Ultimately, if you are unhappy about what someone else has, then in reality you are complaining about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala giving uh, them what he wishes to give them. 
So am yahsudun nas what do they envy people what Allah has bestowed upon them of his bounty and the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was a victim of envy in fact this verse is related to rasulullah alaihi salatu wasalam and there are other verses also which speak about envy in fact in one verse ahum yaqsimuna rahmata rabbik nahnu qasamna baynahum ma'ishatuhum fil hayati dunya wa rafa'na ba'dhum faqa ba'dhum darajat Allah says this is in relation to the quraish again they said, لَوْلَا نُزِّلَ هَذَا الْقُرْآنُ عَلَىٰ رَجْلٍ مِّنَ الْقَرْيَتَيْنِ عَظِيمٍ That the Quraysh said, why did Allah give the Qur'an and revelation to this man, Muhammad, the son of Abdullah? He's not rich, he's not powerful, he's not of a noble, honorary position in our people. If Allah wished and he wanted to make a messenger, then لَوْلَا نُزِّلَ هَذَا الْقُرْآنُ Why wasn't this Qur'an revealed عَلَىٰ رَجْلٍ مِّنَ الْقَرْيَتَيْنِ عَظِيمٍ Upon a great man from the two cities. And the two cities means Ta'if and Mecca. So why wasn't uh, someone, one of the leaders of Quraysh from Mecca chosen for prophethood? Or why wasn't one of the leaders of Banu Thaqif in the city of Ta'if chosen for prophethood? Uh, so this is similar to our objection when we are envious of someone. Why does he have that? Why does she have that? So Allah Azza wa Jal say, why don't we have it? Allah Azza wa Jal says, أَهُمْ يَقْسِمُونَ رَحْمَةَ رَبِّكَ What? Do they divide and distribute the mercy of Allah? نَحْنُ قَسَمْنَا بَيْنَهُمْ مَعِيشَتَهُمْ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا We are the ones who have distributed their livelihood between them. And there are other verses, there are many ahadith about this topic of envy. I've spoken on it in detail, devoting the whole talk to just envy, refer to that. I'll end with just uh, one or two uh, quotes about envy. In reality, it doesn't make sense being envious. Envy consumes energy and your brain cells. We have a limited amount of energy and a limited number of brain cells. This is a good way of thinking about it. We have a limited number of breaths, limited number of brain cells, a limited number of a limited amount of energy. Why should we burn that energy and consume it on someone else? Why not put that to good use? If someone has something, pray to Allah for the same. Work towards the same, rather than pursue that individual and seethe with anger within. And that's all envy does. Envy is a fire. It consumes our good deeds, just as fire consumes wood and dry grass, in the words of the Messenger wasallam. It consumes our brain cells, it consumes our energy, and it's a fire that rages within. And it consumes us before anyone else. In fact, the one who is a victim of our envy does not suffer so much because of our envy. And that's why Imam al-Hasan al-Basri rahmatullahi has said something which is very beautiful. He said, مَا رَأَيْتُ ظَالِمًا أَشْبَهَ بِظَالِمٍ مِنْ حَاسِدٍ نَفَسٌ دَائِمٌ وَحُزْنٌ لَازِمٌ وَعَبْرَةٌ لَا تَنْفَدْ Imam al-Hasan al-Basri, a very wise and famous scholar, he says that I have never seen someone who's oppressed, sorry, I have never seen an oppressor who seems more like an oppressed one. I have never seen an oppressor and a perpetrator of a crime who actually seems more like the oppressed and the victim himself. So, than a hasid, an envier. When you look at an envious person, in reality, he is perpetrating the sin and crime of envy against someone else. He 
he is the one who is oppressing another and being unjust to another with his crime and sin of envy. But in reality, he looks more like the oppressed than the victim himself. Because nafasun da'im, he says, endless sighs. Huznun nazim, inseparable grief. Wa'abratun la tanfad, and endless tears. And that's him, not the victim of his envy. So it's fire which consumes a person from within. It doesn't make sense. It's, it requires so much energy. It's far better for a person to be happy for someone else. That relieves an individual. And this is why another famous scholar says, well, a poet says, To Allah belongs the wonder of envy. Envy begins with the envy and it kills him. Envy begins with the envier and it kills him. And there's another beautiful poem that says that وَإِذَا أَرَادَ اللَّهُ نَشْرَ فَضِيلَةٍ طُوِيَتْ أَتَاحَ لَهَا عَيْنَ حَسُودِي لَوْلَ اشْتِعَالُ النَّارِ فِيمَا جَاوَرَتْ مَا كَانَ يُعْرَفُ طِيبُ عَرْفِ الْعُودِي It rhymes. It says that when Allah wishes to expose and reveal, or when Allah wishes to reveal a virtue which was hitherto concealed, then Allah gives to that virtue the tongue of an envious person. So that person constantly talks about the victim of his envy and the virtues and the good deeds of that victim of envy appear and are revealed to the people. And then there's a very beautiful couplet that follows it, which says, If it wasn't for the bursting of fire and the inflammation of fire, and it's lighting up what's in its immediate surroundings, the fragrance of Ud would never be known. The beauty of the fragrance of Ud would never be known. Meaning, you know Ud. Ud in Arabic simply means stick. And when we have this rood, uh, sticks that are burnt, th- these sticks are actually from the bark of trees, fragrant trees. So it's just normal bark. And if you smell the dry bark, it's odorless. It's actually odorless. Or you may have a slight fragrant odor, but not much. In fact, some of them, the original genuine ones, are odorless. But when you, when you f- light a fire and heat them up, there are oils uh, as residue within the bark of those trees. And this oil burns and gives off, gives off a very powerful uh, and very beautiful pra- fragrance. So he's, again, speaking of fire, he says, if it wasn't for fire, uh, which lights up its surroundings uh, and burns the wood and the bark of these trees, or oud, then the beauty of the fragrance would have, of oud would never be realized. And again, he speaks about uh, the individual, that when the fire of envy rages within an envious person, it burns and consumes him, but he actually gives off the fragrance of other people's virtues, and the virtues of the victim of his envy. I end with this. This brings us to the end of uh, Surah Al-Falaq. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand his words, and to draw wisdom and learning and lessons from them. May Allah grant us his protection from the evil of all of these things that are mentioned in Surah Al-Falaq and other evils also. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadul Haq.
and has been brought to you by Alcotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.